are in this season here at Fellowship of Faith called Lent. Christians around the world right now are, are in the same season of time um, that goes from a date called Ash Wednesday, about 40 days before Easter, that we sit in and, and kind of just groove in all the way up until the day before Easter Sunday. And it's been a time for Christians especially that's been particularly noted by what are called spiritual practices. And spiritual practices are nothing more than intentional daily or, shall we say, regular things that we engage in in order to, well, express our love and devotion to God, acknowledge our sinfulness, acknowledge our need of Him, our brokenness, and as a way to kind of foster and develop a continued path with him. And so what we've been doing here at FOF these past few weeks, and we're going to be digging in more today, is looking at what some of these spiritual practices are. And so many of them have been reduced to, to traditions for tradition sake. But what I want to do is kind of pull back the layer on some of those traditions to get at what it was originally trying to capture Underneath. Now, one of these big traditions that I've seen people practice here at FOF and every church I've belonged to and every church I've known someone belonged to is giving something up for Lent. All right? Forgive me for this. I'm going to put you on the spot. I don't really care, but just, just go with me on this. Be loud and proud. If you gave something up for Lent, could you just kind of boom, shoot it up in the air? Okay, I just kind of always like to see where 9 compares to 10.30, and 10.30, I'll let you know, like the 70 of you who rose your hands, it's like more than 9, so rock on. Okay, rock on. We are in the superior service, but don't tell them I said that, all right? Have you ever heard or known someone, though, who's engaged in the practice of giving something up for Lent? Here's how it goes for most people. Beginning of February is rolling around. You're kind of out of that post-Christmas haze. You're starting to feel good again. Life's on track. And then someone drops like the Lent bomb on you. goes, hey, you know, it's like Ash Wednesday in a week. And you're like, shoot. Right? What am I going to give up? What am I going to give something up? Okay, I guess I got to give something up. What can I give up that seems meaningful but really won't affect my life too much? <laughs> right? What's something that I like but is kind of like fanciful. It's, it, it's, it's filled with frivolity. You know? What do people give up for Lent? They give up like caffeine, chocolate, fast food. Why is it always eating for us in the Midwest, right? Sometimes people will give up electronics or things like this. But the whole spirit of it, I find for most people, and I, guys, you got to understand, I'm in this boat here too, all right, is just like, Oh, I got to do it. I got to give something up. What do I give up? Okay, I'm getting fat. I guess I'll give up chocolate. You know, it's kind of like one of these kinds of things. And it's this like major drag for like 40 days of giving something up because there's this self-imposed guilt that if I don't give something up, I'm doing something wrong or I'm a terrible person or my grandmother's going to curse me from heaven or, you know, something like that is going to play out. And then if we do give it up, well, it's still a major drag. So what fun, guys. We're in Lent. Welcome to drag season. You know what I mean? And this becomes the approach 
to so many of these spiritual practices. But you know, what I want to do, clear all that away. Let's clear the decks and get what it's supposed to be about. Because I think if we can rediscover that, we can also rediscover something maybe missing that we could have with God there. Now, Lent is a time of fasting. The way that people, followers of Jesus, have practiced this season for centuries has been to fast during Lent. This is where the tradition of giving something up comes out of. It is this more foundational practice called fasting that you see people in the Old and New Testament alike engage in. Now, for most people, you hear fasting, you think food, right? And certainly, when you look at the pages of the Bible, fasting often did mean a giving up or a denying of food. But if you look deeper, you can find throughout the Bible that fasting also included all other kinds of things, things that were central to people, important to people, things that people were dependent on for their life or for vitality or for whatever it might be, sometimes even things that were good gifts of God that people have in turn made an idol out of and elevated too far up. And so on the pages of the Bible, you'll see, see people denying themselves, giving these things up, setting them aside, not for its own sake, because that's just kind of dumb, but for a very specific purpose that I think is often missed. Let me give you one example. In the Bible, you can see people fasting from sex. This is 1 Corinthians 7 that I'm going to read to you. And, and what Paul is doing is he's giving encouragement and, 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 and helping teach husbands and wives how to kind of live out their married relationship to the fullest. And this is what he says. He says, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. And then he says this, do not deprive each other. And I really wish he just would have stopped there. But he doesn't, he goes on. And he says, do not deprive each other, except by mutual consent and for a time, for a time. Not forever, not as a way of life, no, for an intentional time. Why? So that you may devote yourselves to prayer. It's nothing more than an expression of fasting, just with something else that is important, central. You could even argue that married couples find vitality in life in, are dependent on for the health of their relationship. Fasting is this self-denial of something central, something important, something good. Put aside and denied for some kind of purpose. 
And what's interesting to me is that I find most people don't fast anymore. Despite the fact that it was standard practices for the Hebrews up until the time of Jesus, despite the fact that it was standard practice at the time of Jesus, and despite the fact that it's been a practice for centuries of Jesus-following people ever since, my experience today is that when people kind of develop their own spiritual practices and live in a devotional way to God, fasting is often not in the mix. What are the things that we do? Well, we come to church, we sing songs of praise, we read the Bible, we have quiet times, maybe we even memorize. But for how many of us, medical reasons aside, like you're getting your blood sugar checked the next day, right? How many of us, when it comes to spirituality, have fasting as a central expression of it. Jesus did. For Jesus, it was a central expression of his devotion to God. Jesus fasted, and you get the sense from Jesus that he just kind of assumed that those who followed him would fast too. You can read on the pages of the Bible where fasting for Jesus isn't really so much of an if as much as it is a when. Let me show you one. This comes out of the Sermon on the Mount. It's uh, this, this extended teaching of Jesus to his disciples about, well, how to be disciples. And he tells them, when you fast, not if you fast, not you better fast, but it's just kind of assumed, right? Well, when you fast, because of course you're going to fast. So when you do, do not look somber as the hypocrites do. For they disfigure their faces to show men that they're fasting. You get the idea, they're walking around, oh, woe is me, woe is me, I'm denying myself, look at me. I'm. You know, they're, they're, they're attention hogs, they're glory hounds. No, when you fast, don't do it like that. This ain't a show. This isn't to get people to feel sorry for you. This isn't people to go, oh, wow, he's spiritual. He fasts. No, 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 nothing like that. Jesus says, as I tell you, people like that, ah, they, they receive their reward in full. No, but when you fast, if, when, when you fast, put oil on your head, Wash your face so that it will not be obvious that you're fasting. Can I kind of translate? When you fast, take a shower, get, on your, get out of bed, put on your nicest clothes, get your hair done, get your nails done, put on that dress so you were looking hot. You know what I mean? And, and, and ladies, I'm obviously talking to you guys, not so much in this arena. But, but you get in this sense, you want to be looking fine when you fast so that people don't know that you're fasting, so that it will not be obvious that you're fasting. Why? Well, let me go on. Jesus will say, so that it will not be obvious to men, but only to your Father, who is unseen. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, 
will reward you. Let me kind of underline those last three words for you mentally here again. Did you catch it? And will reward you. Not only is fasting assumed by Jesus, but it seems there's even rewards attached to it. Some kind of blessing, something good, God will give to those who engage in it properly. And despite it, for most of it, it's like, it's like a forgotten art, a forgotten practice. And I want to rediscover why. Why is it that this is such a central part to the devotional practice of those who follow God? And I find there is so much misunderstanding or non-understanding around what fasting is, or maybe better, what fasting does. And I think as a result, it just becomes a, well, tradition for tradition's sake, and often traditions for tradition's sake get put over in the corner to be admired once in a while, but nothing more. But what is it? What is it that's there that connects with God on? What is it that it's meant to express? What is it that Jesus goes so far to say and he will reward you? What is it in this practice that was so central to Jesus himself and so many of his followers since? What I'd like to do is look at four things. Four things that fasting does. This is not exhaustive. You'll find more on the pages of the Bible, but for time's sake, let's hone in on just four things to see what they help us discover for those of us looking for that deeper devotion with God. The first is so obvious that we miss it. Fasting makes you hungry. You ever gone without food? You ever gone like without a meal? You ever gone without a snack? Right? What is it about our bodies that every two to three hours they start crying out, food, food, feed me, more food? Can I just ask you, would it not be heartbreaking if you came in here on Sunday morning and none of that food was out there? It's like, my day is ruined. You, you, you know what I mean? I've seen people not get their cup of coffee and go into like catatonic shock. Like, what, what do I do? How do I function? How do I live? Food, fasting, it makes you hungry. Now go with me on this. The point of fasting is not to do it well, not to do a good job at it. The point of fasting is to not do it well. Have you ever fasted and cheated? Come on, right? Do you know that's the point? Have you ever fasted and found yourself going, 
this is hard. This isn't easy. I don't like this. Understand, that is the point. The point of fasting is not to do it well. The point of fasting is to show us how not well we do it. To show us how weak we are. Fast and you get weaker. Fast and you lose energy. Fast long enough and clarity of mind and strength do not increase. They dissipate. Because the the point of fasting is exactly that. To show how frail and dependent we actually are. And therefore, how dependent we actually are on God. It is easy when the calories are plentiful, the caffeine is intravenously fed, and the stomach is full to feel strong enough to conquer the day, the life, and the world. But takeaway is something as simple as food from the gullet. And it's not too long before each of us realize how dependent on something as simple as food we actually are. This is what Jesus is getting at when he was fasting. You might remember the story. Jesus was... uh, Well, he had what I'd call a spiritual mountaintop experience. See, he was baptized, but for him it was like next-level kind of stuff. He goes down to the Jordan, like the actual Jordan River. John the Baptist actually baptized him. How cool is that, right? He goes into the water. He gets baptized. Heaven rips open. God the Father speaks. Manifestations of the Spirit start coming down. Proclamations are made. Coronation of the Son is put upon him. It is proclaimed that he is the Son, that the world should listen to him. I mean, okay, you have a moment like that. You you take some pictures, right? Immediately following this, it says the Spirit of God casts him out into the wilderness, that lonely place, that, that place of, 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 of the jackals, the place that's haunted, the place of the demons and the darkness and separation from God, the place of desolation, the place of testing and temptation that the people of God found themselves in, literally, historically. And for 40 days, it says Jesus went without food. For 40 days and 40 nights, he fasted. And like, it needs to tell us this next line, but it says, and afterwards he was hungry. And at this time of weakness, of frailty, of, it says the tempter comes to him, the Satan. And I never really got this story growing up. It never made sense to me. Because the tempter comes to him Jesus, look at these rocks. The desert is full of them. I mean, there, there are more rocks out here than the eye can see. Just take a few. Turn to stones to bread. How is this a temptation? The temptation of what? To eat? There's something wrong with eating? I never really got this, but look at how Jesus answers this. 
He goes, no, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. See, our bodies are dependent on food. Without food, we don't live. But I think it's easy to forget something, that we are dependent on something else as well, dependent on something else to live. Each of us is dependent on God. Without God, without his sustaining breath, without his life, without what he gives, we are dead. Our bodies are dead. Our souls are dead. We are not the self-sufficient creatures. We like to pride ourselves to be what Jesus taught is something very different. That each of us, for our lives, is dependent on God. Jesus faces the devil and he goes, I know that I need bread for life. But there is something more than just this life. I am dependent on God for eternal life. And just as bread sustains life, so God sustains eternal life. And how many of us have forgotten or lost sight of the hunger in the wake of the feast of grace that God gives, forgetting we are dependent on him. And Jesus knew this, and Jesus would not forget. The body is important, but eternal life is more important. And the only way I get to live forever is by him. That's why Jesus says stuff like this makes you think of these things entirely differently. When Jesus says things like, I am the bread of life. You need, you need food to live. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never be hungry. It's why he says stuff like this. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. We fast to remember how dependent we are on the one who sustains our soul so we can live. It's just one thing that fasting is about. Here's another. Fasting trains your will. Just like if you want your body to be strong, you have to exercise it. And just like if you want your mind to be strong, you have to exercise it. If you want your soul to be strong, your will to be strong, your character, that which you are, if you want it to be strong, you have to exercise the soul See, exercise is really nothing more than a practice in self-denial and the invitation of pain. It's saying, in a regular way, 
I will say no to things, no to comfort, no to relaxation, no to leisure, no to all the other things and deny myself those things and invite in struggle, invite in testing, invite in discomfort as I push my body, right? Because I know that by doing that, it will become stronger as a result to face even greater things. This is why athletes train. It's why they train every day, practicing and going through things, lifting weights and running, pushing themselves, so that when the day of competition comes, they will not only be able to finish the race, but to prevail. Guys, I got to tell you, there's no easy way around this one. The same is true with your soul. Don't exercise it. Don't train it. It'll become weak, flabby, will not function when the days of real testing come your way. That's what Peter's getting at. Let me share a verse with you. He writes this. Since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourself with the same attitude because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. See, for years when I read this passage, what I thought it was getting at was like Christ's crucifixion. You know, that final day when Christ is being brutalized and beaten and whipped and flogged and, and nailed to a cross and carrying it to the place. I thought it was all that kind of stuff. It never really made sense to me because it's like, okay, so Christ is brutalized and tortured. I need to like, what, be open to brutalization and torture? I'm not quite so sure. That's really the right way to look at it. Because Christ's entire life was one of self-denial. If I can use the term, Christ's entire life was one of the daily discipline of fasting, of saying no and training himself, saying no and allowing himself to suffer for a greater cause so that when the day of testing for him came, I mean the crucifixion, he was ready. He was trained, and he prevailed. Peter says, do the same thing. If Jesus fasted, if Jesus denied himself, if Jesus trained his soul and will, how much more do those who claim to follow him? So do it, because he who has suffered in the body is done with his sin, because he who has learned to deny himself when the day of sin and temptation comes, we'll stand strong, prepared, ready to face it. He who is trained is no longer a victim to sin. We've been doing this memory passage here. It's one of our faith challenges, a way that we seek to train ourselves. Taking various passages like these kids but as adults as well. Why we've ever thought that training should end at the age of fifth grade is beyond me. But 
it's a thing that we encourage us to do in here, to train our minds, to memorize these various passages. And we're looking at this one in Galatians, and it kind of goes like this. Paul writes, so I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to your sinful nature. They're in conflict with each other, the Bible says, that you do not do what you want. That each of us here has two natures, and we know them well. Warring and pulling and, and vying against each other. That side of us that's made alive again by God's Spirit, but that side of us that is corrupt and represents our old self. How many times have we experienced that battle in our hearts? The thousands of daily choices, daily decisions, daily motivations we stand against every single day. Paul will go on to write about how what that sinful nature wants is, it's, it's obvious. Things like sexual immorality and impurity and debauchery and idolatry and witchcraft and hatred and jealousy and discord and envy and factioning and all this other kind of stuff. But then he gets to the other side to talk about what that spirit is like. And he says it's stuff like this, love and joy, peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, to which at this point we're all like, yeah, that feels like what the spirit is like. And then there's the forgotten ninth, self-control. That someone who is filled with the spirit manifested by the Spirit, living in the Spirit, has self-control. The Bible will call these things fruit. It's outcroppings of what the Spirit of God will bring in your life, but like fruit, it needs to be cultivated. Self-control is not something that just falls in our laps. It's something that God plants and calls us to cultivate it, to develop it, to train, to learn the practices of saying no, of denying ourselves, of deferring gratification, of forcing ourselves to do what we don't want to do. This is what fasting is. It's training the soul. It's training the will so stuff like this is reality. So that we don't live the rest of our earthly lives for evil human desires. But for something more and something better. The will of God. Fasting is a path to discovering that. Here's a third that I want to give you today. Fasting is a sacrifice. It's inherent in the way we phrase it. It's giving something up. I think of the ways that many of us sacrifice today and why we do it. Why is it that we give something up? Because all of us sacrifice. You might not bring a goat to an altar and slit its throat but we still sacrifice in all other kinds of ways. First of all, sacrifice is a willful act. 
It's something we do willingly. Something where I say, I choose to give this thing up. This thing that is valuable, this thing that is important, and this thing that is precious to me. Why do we do it? Well, let's talk about some ways. You give gifts. A gift is a sacrifice. I'm giving my money, my time, or something that I own that I like. I am removing blessing from me to bless you. You know, when it's rightly motivated and not with like an ulterior motive attached to it, why do we do it? I don't know. Because you love them? Because you want to thank the person? Because you want to express gratitude somehow because you want to go, you're important to me. Who you are matters and what you did matters. Isn't that why we give gifts? It's why we sacrifice. Fasting becomes a way of saying, God, you're important. You matter to me. I appreciate what you did. I value who you are, and I want to show my gratitude today. I want to give you one last for this morning. And it's this. Fasting is brokenness. I want to read you an utterly heart-wrenching story out of the Bible. I'm just going to give you a section. You can read the whole thing on your own. This is from 2 Samuel 12. David, you know, like King David of Old Testament fame, is standing under the judgment of God and facing punishment from God for his sin. His child is sick, newborn, and it looks like he might die. And David knows that it's because of what he did. Here's how it goes. It says, after Nathan the prophet had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had borne to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. Then it says this. He fasted. For him, this pleading before God, this brokenness before God, was attached to this thing called fasting. He fasted. Went into his house and spent the nights lying on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused and he would not eat any food with them. Fasting is an expression of brokenness. It is what people have called self-mortification. For people who are broken in their sin. A way of saying, I am so, so sorry 
for what I did. I am so, so sorry. If I could go back and do it all over again, I would. And I know that you forgive me, and I know that you said it, but saying I'm sorry and just dismissing it easily does not begin to express the amount of brokenness that I have inside for what I did. Those of you who have been in that place, you know what I'm talking about. If you've never been broken over your sin, I mean, really broken over it, this one isn't going to make any sense, and there's nothing more I can say about it to you. But to those of you who have been in that place, where you stood before God and go, God, I am so sorry, and I deserve it. Whatever you give me, I deserve it. You should strike me down for what I did, for what I've become. Fasting became this expression of abject brokenness and repentance before God. A way of saying, I need you to live like I need food to live, but I don't deserve it. Take my life for what I did. And for centuries, people who have followed God, who came face to face with their own inner realities, would give up food as an expression to God that I'm sorry didn't seem to convey enough of in their hearts and will. And this is just some of the things that stand behind fasting. What it's about and where it's coming from. Here's the thing. I mean, I could share with you more. We could take notes. We could learn this and memorize it. But the point is to do it for the right reason and the right inclination. And if you are here today and fasting has not become a part of your spiritual practice, your reflection of devotion, I, I, you're missing something. There's a hole or a blind spot. You're missing something central to how Jesus expressed it, what he did. So I just want to leave you with the encouragement. Consider making it a part of your path of devotion. Maybe even starting today. So I'm going to invite you to rise. If fasting is an expression of brokenness, it means it goes hand in hand with confession. And maybe you're here today and you are broken in your sin. We have a God, I think of how Joel said it, who says, rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to me. Return to the Lord your God, for I am gracious 
and compassionate. And if you're in that place today, we just give you this opportunity now to do just what that passage says. Let's pray. O Father who forgives, who will forgive, who has forgiven, we return again to acknowledge what we are eager to forget, that our hearts have not forsaken. Seeking good apart from you as if we could set you aside to test our sin once more. We have sold sacred hours to search out some relief in the same barren fields we've so often wandered. We've returned to you empty, only to find in the end you walked those fields with us, offering joy all along. O Father who forgives, please make us convinced that our sin cannot satisfy, that good comes only from you. We rise together now, standing only in your grace, hoping only in your Son, God the Father in heaven, God the Son, Redeemer of the world, God the Holy Spirit, Christ the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, Christ the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away our sins, the sins of the world. Christ. O Lord. O Christ. Most merciful God, we confess that we are by nature sinful and unclean. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done And by what we have left undone, we have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We justly deserve your present and eternal punishment. But for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us, so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name.